everyone, welcome back to Yale Vascular Review. We're your hosts, Kayuri and Ocean, and we are excited to bring you another episode full of brilliant new research. Our topic for this episode is carotid disease, and we reviewed all the papers published in Journal of Vascular Surgery, European Journal of Vascular Surgery, and Annals of Vascular Surgery over the last few months and have selected 12 papers to discuss today. This month, we'll be adding a trivia question at the end of the episode for a prize. And we also have a very special guest joining us later today, so stay tuned. Let's get started. The first paper for discussion today is the Editor's Choice article from February edition of European Journal of Vascular Surgery. This was titled, Relevance of Infarct Size, Timing of Surgery, and Perioperative Management for Non-Ischemic Cerebral Complications After Carotid Endartrectomy. Authors include Dr. House and Dr. Gortler from Magdeburg University, Germany. Retrospective analysis was done of prospectively collected single-center carotid endartrectomy registry data. Consecutive patients with symptomatic carotid stenosis were subjected to standard patch endartrectomy. Brain infarct size was measured from the axial slice of preoperative CT or MRI imaging, demonstrating the largest infarct dimension and was categorized as large, which was more than 4 cm square, small, less than or equal to 4 cm square, or absent. Carotid endartrectomy was performed early within 14 days or delayed 15 to 180 days after the ischemic event. 646 symptomatic patients were enrolled, about 53% underwent early carotid endartrectomy, 57% demonstrated brain infarction corresponding to stenosis-induced symptoms, which was small in 41% and large in 16%. Postoperative non-ischemic cerebral complications occurred in 2% of patients and were independently associated with large infarcts and median intraoperative mean arterial blood pressure in the upper quartile, that is, above 120 mercury. Timing of carotid endartrectomy after the ischemic event preoperative antiplatelet regimen and postoperative blood pressure were not associated with non-ischemic cerebral complications. They concluded that infarct size and unintended high perioperative blood pressure may increase the risk of non-ischemic complications at carotid endartrectomy independently of whether performed early or delayed. Now, Kiri, before we go ahead and talk about our next paper, do you want to explain for our listeners what the difference is between carotid endartrectomy, TCAR, or transcarotid artery vascularization, and transfemoral carotid stenting? Sure. So starting with carotid endarterectomy, this is an open surgical procedure in which the carotid artery plaque is surgically removed by separating it off of the inner arterial wall. In TCAR, or transcarotid artery revascularization, a small incision is made just above the clavicle. A sheath is placed directly into the carotid artery and connected to a system that reverses blood flow away from the brain to prevent any loose plaque from reaching the brain, capturing any debris in a filter. The filtered blood is returned through a second sheath in the common femoral vein. A stent is then placed in the carotid artery during this procedure. And finally, CAS, or TF-CAS, is transfemoral carotid artery stenting. Under ultrasound guidance, the common femoral artery is accessed percutaneously. The wire is advanced until the common carotid artery is selectively cannulated. The lesion is transversed, followed by placement of an embolic protection device, and an appropriately sized stent is deployed in the carotid artery. Thank you, Curie. That was great. Now, our next paper is from JVS September issue. It was titled, 
propensity score matched analysis of one-year outcomes of transcarotid revascularization with dynamic flow reversal, carotid endarterectomy, and transfemoral carotid artery stenting. With Dr. Malice from UCSC and Dr. Schremerhorn from Beth Israel among authors. All patients undergoing TCAR, transfemoral carotid artery stenting, and carotid endarterectomy between 2016 and 2019 were identified in the VQI database. About 42,000 patients underwent carotid endarterectomy, around 5,700 patients underwent TCAR, and about 6,000 patients underwent transfemoral carotid artery stenting. Among 4,100 TCAR versus CEA matched pairs of patients, there were no significant differences in 30-day stroke or death. However, TCAR was associated with a lower risk of 30-day stroke, death, and MI. At one year, no significant difference was observed in the risk of ipsilateral stroke or death among 4,000 matched pairs in the TCAR versus transfemoral carotid artery stenting group TCAR was also associated with lower risk of perioperative stroke or death compared with transfemoral stenting. At one year, the risks of ipsilateral stroke or death of TCAR and transfemoral stenting were comparable. Symptomatic status did not modify the association in TCAR versus carotid endarterectomy. However, asymptomatic patients had favorable outcomes with TCAR versus transfemoral stenting at one year. In this propensity score-matched analysis, no significant differences in ipsilateral stroke or death-free survival were observed between TCAR and carotid endarterectomy or between TCAR and transfemoral stenting. The advantages of TCAR compared with transfemoral stenting seem to be mainly in the perioperative period, which makes it a suitable minimally invasive option for surgically high-risk patients with carotid artery stenosis. Larger studies with longer follow-up and data on restenosis are warranted to confirm the mid- and long-term benefits and durability of TCAR. Ocean, our next paper is also from JVS September issue. Right, and actually the first author for this paper is Dr. Paola Batarse, who matched in our Yale Vascular Integrated Program. The paper is titled Perioperative Outcomes of Carotid Endarterectomy and Transfemoral and Transcervical Carotid Artery Stenting in Radiation-Induced Carotid Lesions. Authors include Dr. Paola Batarsa from Einstein College of Medicine, Dr. Jeffrey Indies from Montefiore Medical Center, and Dr. Issam Kolela from St. Barnabas Hospital. The purpose of their study was to evaluate patients who had undergone these carotid artery interventions for radiation-induced carotid stenosis and the associated outcomes, as there is limited data available to guide the choice of intervention for these patients. Patients in the VQI Carotid Artery Stenting Surveillance Program Registry and the SVS VQI CEA modules who had undergone carotid artery intervention for radiation-induced carotid stenosis were included. A composite of death, myocardial infarction, and stroke was the primary outcome. A total of almost 2,000 patients with radiation-induced carotid stenosis underwent carotid interventions, about 1,200 carotid endarterectomies, 250 TCARs, and 500 transfemoral cast procedures. The CEA group had a higher rate of diabetes, hypertension, and peripheral vascular disease. The TCAR and cast groups had higher rates of coronary artery disease. The patients who had undergone transfemoral carotid artery stenting were more likely to have had symptomatic lesions and prior stroke. 
the composite outcome occurred in 3.2% of TCAR patients, 11.2% of transfemoral carotid artery stenting patients, and 11.1% of carotid endarterectomy patients. However, no differences in the individual outcomes were noted for any procedure. TCAR exhibited the lowest odds ratio for cranial nerve injury compared with transfemoral carotid artery stenting, both relative to carotid endarterectomy. In conclusion, radiation-induced carotid stenosis patients treated by TCAR in the SVSVQI had the lowest risk of the composite of stroke, death, and MI and cranial nerve injury. Therefore, TCAR might be the preferred treatment modality. And now, Ocean, would you like to introduce our guest speaker? Yes, absolutely. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Charles Matuk. Dr. Matuk is a world-renowned neurosurgeon with a massive social media following. He's an associate professor of neurosurgery at Yale University and is the chief of neurovascular surgery at Yale New Haven Hospital. I had the opportunity of doing a neuroendovascular rotation with Dr. Matuk last year, and it was a wonderful experience. I learned so much from him. Dr. Matuk, thank you for joining us today. We are delighted to have you as our guest for this episode. Well, thank you so much for having me, Ocean and Kayuri, on the Yale Vascular Review. How exciting all your success has been. Congratulations. It's tremendously exciting for me to speak to a global audience today on vascular surgery to vascular surgery-minded people. As you said, my name is Charles Matuk, and uh, some of you might be asking, why is a neurosurgeon speaking on a vascular surgery podcast? And the answer is actually quite simple and straightforward in that we both share a profound love for carotid disease and its management. Today we're going to review a nice paper from a Swedish group with lead author Magnus Johnson entitled Carotid Endarterectomy After Intracranial Endovascular Thrombectomy for Acute Ischemic Stroke in Patients with Carotid Artery Stenosis. This is actually a very hot topic in the field, and I think it's a very timely paper. So this paper really compared patients who present with a stroke and subsequently underwent a carotid endarterectomy. That on its you know, face value doesn't sound particularly special because that's on whom we generally operate. But the wrinkle that these authors looked at was whether or not there were differences in safety and efficacy between groups that underwent mechanical thrombectomy for stroke and those that just presented with a stroke alone and did not undergo the mechanical thrombectomy procedure. Before we get into the results of the actual paper and their findings, it's probably helpful just to sort of review mechanical thrombectomy and its new importance in the management of acute stroke syndromes. In 2015, there was a series of five what are known as pivotal trials that clearly established that if you have a blood vessel that's blocked in the brain, and it's a larger blood vessel like the intracranial internal carotid artery or the middle cerebral artery, especially in its first segment, that if you can go up and mechanically remove the clot using endovascular strategies, patients did much better in terms of reducing the size of their stroke turning what would have been a large stroke into a smaller stroke and had much better functional outcomes at three months. There's very few things in medicine that we would consider sort of watershed moments where things are looked at before and after the emergence of a drug or a surgical strategy, but this would be 
a watershed moment, not only in neurovascular surgery or in vascular neurology, but really in all of medicine because of stroke is such a common disease process. That has obviously now, you know, opened up a whole bunch of questions about how to quickly get people in and out of endovascular suites where this relatively newer procedures being performed that really only select a few regional centers, and then how to care for these patients postoperatively or postprocedurally. And one of the issues that comes up is the issue that this paper has tackled, which is if patients undergo the procedure and have a symptomatic carotid stenosis as the cause for the stroke, is it appropriate to intervene? Is it as effective as intervening if a patient did not get mechanical thrombectomy? and is it as effective? So those are the questions that were tackled in this paper. So what these authors found is, I think, very important, and that was that patients who underwent a carotid endarterectomy post-mechanical thrombectomy fared equally well compared to patients who did not get a mechanical thrombectomy but presented with a stroke. Importantly, in the post-mechanical thrombectomy group, those patients had even higher grades of stenosis compared to the non-thrombectomy group and had larger presenting stroke syndrome. So in general, were sicker patients were presenting you know, in a more fragile state. In fact, when you look at the numbers without the sort of statistical interpretation, in the group that had a CEA post-mechanical thrombectomy, there was actually a lower 30-day stroke and death rate compared to the non-mechanical thrombectomy group, 0% compared to 3.7%. It might be interesting to ask why that is. I think another nice data point in the study is that the majority, the overwhelming majority of the patients in both groups uh, were intervened upon within 14 days of the ictal stroke event. And I think that's really important because that's consistent with best practice, where we want to perform the carotid revascularization procedure, which is for secondary stroke prevention in this context, as early as possible, as long as it's safe to do so. And and most people say more than 48 hours, but less than 14 days. And in fact, the, the median times in this group and both groups were seven and eight days, respectively. So... What it showed is that you can get very safe and effective carotid revascularization with CEA in this patient cohort, and that hasn't really been shown before. So that was, I think, a nice added finding to the study. Thank you so much, Dr. Matug, for sharing this interesting paper with us. And thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Oh, super, super fun. Thanks for having me. The next paper I want to discuss talks about CT imaging and carotid disease. This was published in the April JVS with Dr. Brijesh Lal from the University of Maryland and Dr. Andrew Buckler from Karolinska University. It was titled, Computer Tomography Angiographic Biomarkers Help Identify Vulnerable Carotid Artery Plaque. The current risk assessment for patients with carotid atherosclerosis relies primarily on measuring the degree of stenosis. More reliable risk stratification could improve patient selection for targeted treatment. They enrolled 221 patients with asymptomatic carotid stenosis of any severity who had undergone CTA at baseline and six months later. The images were analyzed for carotid plaque morphology, including plaque geometry and tissue composition. The data were partitioned into training and validation cohorts. Of the 221 patients, 190 had complete records available and were included in the present analysis. 
the training cohort was used to develop the best model for predicting MAIN, or major adverse neurologic events, incorporating the patient and plaque features. A total of 62 patients had experienced a MAIN during follow-up. Multivariable predictive modeling showed that a combination of the plaque features at baseline, like matrix, intraplaque hemorrhage, wall thickness, and plaque burden, with the clinical features like age, BMI, lipid levels, best predicted for MAIN. In contrast, the percent diameter stenosis performed the worst. The strongest single variable for discriminating between patients with and without MAIN was intraplaque hemorrhage, and the most predictive model was produced when intraplaque hemorrhage was considered with wall remodeling. They concluded that a composite of plaque geometry, plaque tissue composition, patient demographics, and clinical information predicted for MAIN better than the, the traditionally used degree of stenosis alone for those with carotid atherosclerosis. That is really interesting, Kiori. Talking about imaging in carotid disease, the next paper is titled Comparison of Transcarotid Artery Revascularization and Transfemoral Carotid Artery Stenting Outcomes among symptomatic and asymptomatic patients based on lesion calcification. This was published in February Annals of Vascular Surgery, and the authors include Dr. Zhu and Dr. Ferries from Mount Sinai, New York. Data from patients in the SVS-VQI database undergoing TCAR from 2017 to 2020 or transfemoral carotid artery stenting from 2005 to 2020 and had carotid artery calcification grading were analyzed. Degree of calcification was stratified into three groups, none, less than or equal to 50% calcification, and more than 50% calcification. A total of almost 10,000 patients, about 4,000 TCARs and 6,000 transfemoral carotid artery stenting were included. TCAR patients were generally smokers, older in age, white, and had more comorbidities than transfemoral stenting patients. Among symptomatic patients, there was no difference in rates of stroke, stroke or TIA, and MI by calcification severity between TCAR and transfemoral stenting. However, there was a trend towards increased risk in all three events with higher calcification only after transfemoral stenting. Symptomatic patients with severe calcification, that is more than 50%, had lower rates of death, stroke or death, stroke, death, or MI, and post-op complications compared to transfemoral stenting. Furthermore, TCAR had lower risk of death at all degrees of calcification compared to transfemoral stenting. Similar findings were noted among asymptomatic TCAR patients with more than 50% calcification in which the rates of death and stroke or death were reduced. They concluded that while increased calcification increased rates of adverse events after transfemoral carotid stenting, this trend was not observed after TCAR. Furthermore, TCAR had lower rates of death than transfemoral carotid stenting across all degrees of calcification and lower rates of stroke or death among patients with severe calcification. These findings suggest that TCAR is protective against death despite anatomic differences and may be particularly beneficial over transfemoral carotid artery stenting in patients with calcified lesions. This next paper by Dr. Shu and Dr. Barshes from Baylor 
published in March Annals of Vascular Surgery, was titled Gender, Racial, and Ethnic Disparities in Index Hospitalization Operations for Symptomatic Carotid Stenosis in Texas Hospitals. The Texas Department of State Health Services database was queried to identify all patients more than 45 years old admitted to non-federal Texas hospitals between 2009 to 2013 with an admission diagnosis of carotid artery stenosis and either TIA, CVA, or amaurosis fugax. Diagnosis codes and demographic data were also used to adjust for clinical, social, and demographic factors. A total of 29,000 symptomatic patients were identified among all the patients who had an eligible admission diagnosis. This included 56% males and 44% females. Only 16% patients were revascularized during the index hospitalization. Adjusting for hospital volume, insurance coverage, residence, and other clinical factors, rates of index admission carotid intervention remained significantly lower for women, persons categorized as black, and persons categorized as Hispanic. They concluded that gender, race, and ethnicity appear to correlate with rates of carotid intervention at index hospitalization despite thorough risk adjustment for clinical, social, and demographic factors. That's interesting, Ocean. Thanks for sharing this paper. Next, I want to do brief teaching here about best medical therapy for carotid disease. Yeah, that's great. Go ahead. So best medical therapy includes risk factor modifications such as smoking cessation, blood pressure management, and diabetes control. This is in conjunction with medical therapy with antiplatelet agents, for example, aspirin or clopidogrel, and statins. And this next paper looked into dual antiplatelet therapy in carotid artery stenting patients. It was titled, Efficacy and Safety of Perioperative Dual Antiplatelet Therapy with Ticagrelor versus Clopidogrel in Carotid Artery Stenting and it was published in the April JVS by the authors Dr. Christina Marcaccio and Dr. Mark Schirmerhorn from Beth Israel. Clopidogrel resistance is associated with increased periprocedural neurologic events after carotid artery stenting. Ticagrelor offers an improved resistance profile. They examined the efficacy and safety of perioperative dual antiplatelet therapy with aspirin ticagrelor versus aspirin clopidogrel in patients undergoing transfemoral carotid artery stenting, or TCAR. They identified all patients who underwent CAS or TCAR in the VQI registry from 2016 to 2021. Among about 18,000 CAS patients, 3% received aspirin ticagrelor and 64% received aspirin clopidogrel. For the 2,065 matched patients, no significant differences were found in the composite endpoint of stroke or death or in the individual endpoints of stroke or death. However, aspirin ticagrelor was associated with a higher risk of bleeding. In a subgroup analysis of about 300 CAS patients who received intraoperative protamine, no differences remained in stroke or death, and there was no longer a difference in bleeding. Among about 18,000 TCAR patients, 2.5% received aspirin ticagrelor, and 76% received aspirin clopidogrel. For the about 1,600 matched patients, no differences were found in stroke or death, stroke, death, or bleeding. For the 88% of TCAR patients who received protamine, no differences were found in stroke or death or bleeding. Compared with aspirin clopidogrel, aspirin ticagrelor was associated with a potentially lower risk of stroke or death and bleeding complications after CAS in cases in which protamine was used, but a higher risk of these outcomes in the absence of protamine. 
And that concludes our episode. Thank you for joining us this month as we stented some of those carotids. Ocean, I want to start doing a trivia question for our listeners. Sure, I like that idea. So, what is the question for this episode? Okay, so according to the paper on carotid artery lesion calcification by Dr. Zhu and Dr. Ferries, they found that increased calcification did not increase rates of adverse events after is it A, transfemoral carotid artery stenting, B, TCAR, C, carotid endarterectomy, or D, none of the above. Click on the link in the description to leave your answer. One respondent with the correct answer will be selected for a prize. And please feel free to leave feedback on our Twitter or Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to Yale Vascular Review on Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in this month. And until then, keep an ear out for those brewies. Curie, that ultrasound's good. <laughs>